Amen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Man, it's good to see you all here this morning. Trust that you're doing well. If I haven't a chance to uh, meet you, if you're new here, my name is Jason. I have the honor of uh, the, the, the title of lead pastor here serving among the body of elders of whom Ken is also serving. And uh, it's truly a privilege to be with you here this morning. Um, so if you're visiting with us, as Jason Martin said earlier in the service, uh, we want nothing from you but only something for you, that you would have the hope that we have in Christ. And so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we look at that hope together. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we put black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, those are there for you. I want you to have a copy of God's Word as we, as we go there this morning. Um, as you get turned to Revelation 3, just a quick announcement about next Sunday. If it's not on your calendar or on your radar yet, next Sunday is uh, Family Fellowship Sunday. And uh, this has become an exciting time for us to get together as a church family. Uh, we, are, uh, we are a multi-service church, which basically means we don't have one room that fits everybody in it. So the only way we can do something like this is to do it outside, which is perfect this time of year. So next Sunday after the second service, um, church family will be outside uh, cooking out, eating lunch together, playing games, everything from bounce houses to horseshoes and uh, all kinds of different games going on for young and old. So come be a part of that um, next Sunday afternoon. Even if you come to the first service, plan on coming back and hanging out with us uh, for the first part of the afternoon. All right, Revelation 3. So let's get started uh, this morning. If you haven't been with us through this series, we're in a sermon series walking through the book of Revelation, and we've made it to chapter 3. And so we're looking at, so after chapter 1, which is introduction to the letter, we get this beautiful, vivid, uh, reverent image of Jesus in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches in seven cities in Asia Minor. We're on church uh, 6 today. We've got one left after today. And then we'll turn the corner into chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters in Revelation. So that'll be two weeks from today. And so we're going to look today at the church of Philadelphia. And so this is not Philadelphia, United States. This is, this is in the first century Philadelphia, Asia Minor. Of all the churches that Jesus writes letters to, this is the youngest city established somewhere around second century B.C. So it doesn't have a long history um, and fairly young in terms of their identity. Uh, but as the name uh, invokes, it is a, a city known for its brotherly love. It was named after one of the leaders who uh, at one point in time sat in leadership over the city, um, who was known for his love for his older brother, hence the, the Greek word phileo, brotherly love. And so they were a city known for their love for one another. Uh, they were uh, struck with, an, with a significant earthquake in 17 AD. Um, at the time Jesus was walking on earth, the city was destroyed um, and they ha had a significant Jewish presence in the city. And so we'll see how those things tie in to the text this morning as we get started. So we're going to start in verse 7. I'm going to read through uh, verse 13, and then we'll come back and walk through it verse by verse together. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, verse 7, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not 
but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, the church in Philadelphia. So we're beginning to catch on to a pattern. Jesus first identifies the church that he's writing to. He's writing to Christians who were living in the city of Philadelphia, Asia Minor, and he's speaking words of encouragement and also words of correction. And then he's reminding them to hold fast to what they have. And so just like all the other letters, once Jesus identifies who he's writing to, he identifies himself in a very specific, unique way to those Christian believers. Each church, he points to something different about himself that reflects something going on within their city, within their church, and within the world around them in a way that encourages them. So just getting started here. After he identifies the church, the church in Philadelphia, he says this. This is how he identifies himself. The words of the Holy One, the True One. We're going to see today in the way Jesus identifies himself that it's heavily rooted in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Bible, Genesis to Malachi, the first part of your Bible. He wants the Christians there and potentially even those beyond the church there to understand who he is in light of the whole Bible. And so he begins with his identity as the Holy One, the true one. The Holy One, meaning the one set apart, right, the one who's other than is one of the most common ways God describes himself in the Old Testament. He's a God like no other God, right? He's, he's a friend, but like no other friend. He's a father, but like no other father. He's truly set apart from anyone else or anything else in heaven and on earth. He's set apart. He's holy, pure, and perfect. But in addition to that, he says, I'm also the true one. The one who is faithful and genuine will be another way to translate this word. Faithful and genuine. Now, what you may not know about the people of the city of Philadelphia is this. After the earthquake in 17 AD, the, the town, the city was destroyed. And the emperor at the time issued an edict of grace and mercy to the city and for five years didn't take taxes. With the purpose that they would invest that into their city and rebuild. And so as you can imagine, the city of brotherly love then felt very indebted to Caesar, felt, felt very much loved and cared for by Caesar. And so they had this close relationship with the emperor of Rome for decades. Now, it wasn't until 92 AD, at the end of the first century, under the rule of Domitian, at almost the exact time this is being written, probably right before this is written, the emperor turns on him. And even though there had been several emperors along that time frame, they saw Caesar as Caesar. And so however the relationship was with one Caesar, they expected to be the same with the next. And Domitian turned on them. 
Matter of fact, it was a time of great famine in the area, and his soldiers were going without, so he issued a new edict for the city of Philadelphia. They were a, uh, they were, their economy was built on vineyards, and if you know anything about vineyards, it takes a lot of years to establish grapevines in such a way that they could actually produce the fruit to produce the wine to turn in an economy. It's not something you can go out, scratch the dirt in early spring, grow a vine, and start harvesting and producing wine later that year. It takes years. And the edict was this. In order to take care of Caesar's army, they had to destroy half of their vineyards to plant grain. Now, as you can imagine, all of a sudden, this relationship they thought they had with Caesar, who was there for them to take care of them, now they felt betrayed. The economy collapsed. Their relationship with Caesar now was on the fringes. They no longer felt like one loved by the emperor of Rome, but one who had been betrayed. What's interesting is how Jesus identifies himself to them. First of all, reminding them that he is, in fact, the God of the Old Testament, holy and set apart. But not only that, he's what? He's the true one, the genuine one, the faithful one, the one who makes and keeps his promises. Now, what a significant message to them, right, in, in this moment in time when they're feeling completely betrayed by the one that they had trusted to lead them and protect them and care for them, emperor had turned on them and left them wanting and without. And Jesus is saying, what? Don't trust in him. He's not the faithful one. I am. I'm the one who makes and keeps promises. And this is turned up a notch when he gets to the next part of his identity, when he identifies himself as the one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, there was a significant Jewish presence in the city of Philadelphia. And, and with that came a great deal of persecution from the Jews. Typically, when we think about Christians being persecuted, we think of the, the federal government. We think about Caesar issuing uh, persecution against the Christians, and it's true. But what we don't realize is that in this particular day and time, the Jews had sold out with Caesar. And they had done a deal. And basically here was the deal. Caesar said, we'll let you Jews worship in your synagogues, worship your God, as long as you obey these rules. And there was a compromise that was made between the Jews and Caesar. Now, here's what happened then. As a, as a fallout from that, the Jews started selling out the Christians, right? Because they didn't want to be targeted, right? So when the Roman army came to town looking to make a statement, they would kick the Christians out in front and say, listen, they aren't obeying the rules, I saw this one yesterday, not bowing down to Caesar. I saw this one the day before, and they would sell them out. And so the Jews became a significant source of persecution against the Christians. And so it's interesting because Jesus identifies himself not just to the Christians, but also to the Jews as the one who holds the key of David. Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, you have no idea what he's saying here. See, all throughout the Old Testament... God is making this beautiful promise over and over again to the people of Israel from generation to generation that he would send a Messiah, one who would come from the lineage of Abraham, a descendant of King David. And so the Jews were to be looking for this Messiah to come. Now the problem was somehow in their minds they developed this image of the Messiah who would come as a political or military leader who would rise up, bring authority from God and crush all the other uh, nations, all the other emperors would all bow down to this Messiah. They had this rich imagery. And so what happens? God sends Jesus as a baby. 
like a fragile, innocent little lamb who grew up as a boy who walked in humility and meekness, and it wasn't at all what they were expecting. Despite the fact that the Old Testament described him, Isaiah 53, over and over again, one who would come like, right, like a sheep being led to the shearers or the slaughter, who would, who would bear, bear the sins of his people on his back with his stripes. All this vivid imagery the Jews knew, yet they missed him when he came, and Jesus is reminding him, them, what? I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the true one. I'm the real one. I am the one who makes and keeps promises. David was such a significant piece of the messianic puzzle from the Old Testament. David, while he was known for his sin with Bathsheba, right, he's also known as a man after God's own heart, right? A noble king, one who ruled not like Saul, but one who ruled the kingdom for the glory of God. And so the prophecy of the Old Testament was this, that one would come from the lineage of David who would be a, a better king, who would take that idea of being a noble king to a new level, right? Not just a mere man, but God himself would sit on the throne of David. 2 Samuel 7 says this, it's a promise that God makes to David. From your lineage, I will raise up one after you who will sit on your throne. But the difference is this, he will sit on your throne forever. So he's not talking about a generational king. Right? He's not talking about David's son, Solomon, sitting on the throne. He says, one is coming from your lineage, David, who will actually sit on your throne and rule as a noble and righteous king, and he will sit there forever. And so David was such a significant piece of the messianic puzzle, and Jesus is saying what? That's me. I'm the descendant of David who has come to sit on the throne of Israel and rule in righteousness forever. And so as Jesus is speaking his identity into the Christians there in Philadelphia, he's saying it in such a way that the Jews were able to understand and to potentially catch what they've missed out on as Jesus identifies himself as the key of David. Then he goes on to say, the one who opens and no one will shut and the one who shuts and no one will open. So let's deal with that imagery first and then we'll talk about what that means. So this imagery is definitely from the Old Testament in the in the book of Isaiah 22, um, it's a prophecy about one who would sit essentially in secretary of state um, by the name of uh, Eliakim. And Eliakim, in his position, had a significant access to the king's palace and therefore to the king's presence. And so the prophet Isaiah is writing about Eliakim in such a way that he's foreshadowing one who would come like him. Let me just read some words from the prophecy of Isaiah in, in chapter 22. Verse 20. So in that day, meaning looking forward, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash around him and will commit your authority to his hand. Now, the folks who've been here for the series, that should sound really familiar. Because in chapter 1, the introduction to Revelation, it ends with the description of Jesus, one wearing a robe with a sash, and he has the stars of, uh, in his right hand depicting his authority over the churches. See, all the way back in Isaiah 22, that imagery is being described of the one who would come. And then the prophet goes on. And so not only will he have the authority in his hand, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of 
Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Listen to this. He shall open and no one shut, or none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And so all the way back in Isaiah, 7th century B.C., six to 700 years before Jesus ever comes to earth, is this description of one who would come bringing the key of David, opening what nobody can shut and shutting what no one can open. And so this imagery in Isaiah 22 is that Eliakim sat in such a position that he had access because of his position, literally had keys to the king's palace and could not only open up the door to the king's palace, but he could open up access where? To the king's presence. And so the one who would come like him would do the same. Now, now this kind of helps us understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm that key of David. The one who opens what no one can shut and shuts what no one can open. Now, this is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 16. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. His ministry is, is launched. He's become very well known. He's become very well liked and very, very well hated, depending on which crowd he's rolling with at the time. And he pulls his disciples aside and he says, hey, I've got a question. Who do they say I am? And so they stutter around for a minute. Maybe you're one of the, you know, some say that you're one of the prophets. Maybe you're Elijah, you know. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter chimes in with this famous response in Matthew 16. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So Jesus responds to Peter and says, Peter, you're absolutely right. But the thing is, you didn't figure that out on your own. My father who's in heaven revealed that to you. And then in verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, this amazing statement you just said about who I am, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You will bind on earth, excuse me, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosened in heaven. So Jesus is the one who has the key of David who unlocks and locks. And here he's saying to his disciples, what? I'm handing those keys to you guys. What is he handing them? What is Jesus handing the disciples that would allow them to be a part of things being unlocked or locked? He's handing them the gospel. He's saying, I'm going to leave with you something that if you'll share it with people, will open up access into my father's kingdom. That will allow people to come into not just the king's palace, but the king's presence. I'm leaving with you the gospel. And so he does. And now here he is reminding the Christians in this church what? I am the key of David. I'm the one who unlocks and the one who locks. Now this is similar to something we're going to read uh, in a few weeks when we get to chapter 4. We see this beautiful imagery of the throne room and then we slip into this scenario where there's a scroll that needs to be unlocked and unrolled and nobody is found who's worthy to unlock it. And John, the disciple who's writing this down, he begins to, he begins to mourn. Isn't anybody capable of unlocking the scroll and only one who is found who is worthy to unlock the scroll? And who is it? The lamb who was slain, Jesus. And so here he's telling the Christians in this church, only I can unlock what is locked for you and only I can lock and shut what has been opened. Now think about what, they had, what happened in their lives. They'd been kicked and run out of the synagogue. They'd had the door of the synagogue slammed in their face 
and told to go find somewhere else to worship. Many of them have been drug out of their own homes and had that door slammed on them and drug out into the streets. Many of them have been put in where? Prison and have been locked behind prison doors. So they were very familiar with being in places where they couldn't open a door. They couldn't unlock something that had been locked to them. And so what a beautiful statement Jesus is making to them. I'm the only one who can truly unlock eternity for you. They, maybe, they may be able to lock you out of the synagogue, but, but access into my Father's presence is only unlocked by me, and they can't shut that on you. Only I unlock what has been locked and shuts in a way that nobody can open. If you're taking notes with us today, um, if you haven't seen it yet in front of you, in the seats in front of you, we have sermon notes. Um, feel free to grab one of those. We've got some fill in the blanks. The first statement says this. Jesus is the Messiah who is promised in the Old Testament to come from among the Jews and who holds the keys of the kingdom of God. He's the one who was promised to come from among the Jews, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, who holds the keys to the kingdom of God, faithfully fulfilling everything God had promised. Now, verse 8. Now, this is the section in the letter where Jesus points out something that's going well. So he says this, I know your works. Now, let's keep in mind, when Jesus says, I know your works, that's different from a person saying that they know your works. Why? Because he's already revealed himself as one who sees below the surface. So he doesn't just see what you do, he sees the heart motive behind what, what you do. Doesn't just hear what you say, but he hears what you're thinking. So when he says, I know your works, it's a, it's a statement of judgment. I've weighed out what you've done and what you've said, and I can see truly who you are on the inside. So he says, I know your works, behold. Now, this is the equivalent of this, if you translate it to English, is the word look with an exclamation point. Look. Look, I have sat before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So on the list of things that he's encouraging them for, he begins by saying, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And what an encouraging statement Jesus is making to these Christians who feel cast out, betrayed, they're being persecuted, they're being kicked out of their own homes, they're being arrested and thrown in prison. And Jesus is saying what? I have opened a door in front of you that nobody can shut. I have extended an invitation, laid an invitation on the table for you that nobody can take away. I alone can open the access to my Father's kingdom, and I have opened that door before you. I have opened that door before you. I think, you know, it's hard to put yourself in their mindset, right? People who have staked everything for Christ. I mean, literally, we're giving up their homes, their crops, their careers. I mean, laying it all on the line. Their very lives are being laid on the line to follow Jesus. I can't put myself fully in that mindset of what it must, the struggle that must have been going on inside, right? To feel at times potentially like they, maybe God had abandoned them or had, you know, changed his mind or maybe he wasn't God after all. And, you know, those kinds of doubts that seep into our minds when we, when we face struggles. And I think it's probably true of some of our lives here today. Like one of the first things that happens when we hit a wall, we hit a hard moment or we walk through a season of maybe darkness or depression is we begin to feel abandoned. 
God maybe changed his mind, maybe there's no God at all, and, and doubt begins to seep in, right? And we begin to feel insecure in our salvation and who we are. So I can't imagine to what extent these Christians potentially struggle in those moments. But I love how Jesus speaks into their situation to remind them, only I can unlock and lock eternity for you. Only I can do that. So no matter what they are doing to you, what they're saying about you, what they may take from you, none of those things changes who you are. I alone have opened access into God's presence for you to come in. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, what, I'm the, I'm the way. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Only I can open up that access into the very presence of God. But then he says this, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, what an interesting thing to encourage them with. Notice he didn't say, I know that you have a ton of power. You are a powerful group of Christians. What does he say? Let me, let me encourage you with something. You got a little power. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing, right, that would be encouraging. Now, to fully understand what Jesus is saying here, let's, let's think for a minute about some of the things that Jesus taught while he was here on earth. So he's saying to them, let me encourage you in this. You have a little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, we think about what Jesus taught about faith with his disciples. Uh, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus is talking about impossible things being done with a little bit of faith. It's a very popular passage here, Matthew 17, 20. He says to them, <clears throat> now they're asking why they couldn't do these miracles that he was doing, his disciples. And so he responds, he says, because of your little faith. Now we're going to see from what Jesus says is not that they had little faith, but it's actually the lack of faith, right? Totally didn't believe at all. So he goes on to say, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. Now, it's hard to get this imagery in mind, but this is the seed so small, you, you, you can't even see it. And so Jesus is saying, with the smallest drop of faith, you will say to this mountain, move from there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So you get this imagery of if you bring to the table faith as small as a mustard seed, metaphorically a mountain is used to describe the impossible, God doing the impossible in your life. As impossible as it is to think there's a mountain right here and somehow I could say move and it would move, God is saying I will work that powerfully in your life with, with the smallest drip, the smallest drop of faith. In Luke, he says something similar. He says this in Luke 17, 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They're asking for more faith. And so Jesus responds in verse 6, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant yourself in the sea and it would obey you. Once again, right, Jesus isn't encouraging us to go around praying that things would be moved in that way. That's a metaphoric expression that God will do impossible things through us with how much faith? I mean the smallest little amount. You see, we're, we're tempted to think when we see God move in a big way that we had something significant to do with it, aren't we? We're tend to, we tend to, to, to look at back over the day and the week and, and see how 
oh, because I did this and I did that and I did that. Look how powerful God moved through me. And God says, that's not how my kingdom works. Here's what I need you to bring to the table. Bring the smallest seed of faith that you got. I mean, so small that at times you can't even see it. You know what that means, you know, for me and my Christian walk is this, that any good that you see in my life, anything that's noble, praiseworthy, admirable, you know what that is? That's the work of God in me. If you follow me around, you're going to see me make tons of mistakes. But I'm talking about the good stuff. The mistakes are all me. If you see good stuff coming out of my life, if you come watch me in my marriage and there's anything about me being a husband that is worthy of being admired and called noble, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing Jesus love my wife Hallie the way he loves the church through me. You know what I bring to the table? Just the smallest seed of faith. That's his power working in me and through me. If you hang out with me long enough, you're going to see me get a couple things right as a, as a parent. You see me get tons of things wrong. That's me. But when you see things go well in such a way that you would go, that's praiseworthy. What you're seeing is the father being a father through me. Don't, don't start applauding me. Please don't. Because the whole thing's going to get messed up. Why? Because the only thing I bring to the table is just a little bit of faith. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, oh, by the way, don't brag about that either because God gave you that. And then he goes on to say why? So that nobody can boast. So even my faith is a gift from God. And so what, what we're seeing here is God, Jesus is saying to the church, let me just tell you what impossible things have been happening through you with what? Little power. Faith like a mustard seed. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have what? Kept my word and have not denied my name. Big things have happened. What does that mean for them? That they've kept his word and not denied his name. We'll get into the imagery of kept in just a minute, but ultimately what he's saying is you've held tight to the gospel and you haven't abandoned it. You've protected it. Like, like a mother with a newborn baby wraps herself around the baby in danger and says, you're not getting to this thing Unless you come through me first, that's the word kept. It's protect, it's guard, like guarded. So they guarded the gospel that way. It was a pretty significant time, right? I mean, the church is being persecuted for keeping the gospel, for not adjusting it or changing it, not changing the identity of Jesus. They're saying, no, he's the son of God. And Caesar says, if you don't change that, I'll kill you. And they said, well, we're not changing. They kept it. But not only that, what else did they keep? They kept the name of Jesus. They did not deny it. They did not deny it. Now that very thing cost them their lives. You talk about powerful. God moving in them in such a way that what they had in faith was worth more than even their lives. And Jesus is commending them. But ultimately, what is he saying? Here's what you brought to the table. Just a little bit of faith. Just a little bit of power. And look at what I am doing through you. taking notes. This is, this is the best way I could describe what I believe Jesus is saying. And this is true for your life if you're a Christian. The power of Jesus infuses the faith of believers to secure our salvation. How does that work? If I just bring faith like a mustard seed, how does that save me? How does that move mountains? And Jesus says, here's the thing. You bring your faith, I'll bring my power. 
You bring what little remnant of whatever you got to the table, and guess what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to dust it off the table, and I'm going to bring my power. You bring what, whatever you got, but Jesus, I'm not a very moral person. Perfect, bring me that. I'm not very honest. That's okay, bring that to me. I'm not a faithful person. I'm always, right, I'm always going back on my word. I'm never keeping my promises. Jesus said, bring it. I can work with anything you bring to the table. Why? Because the power rests on me. Bring it to me. We talked about this last week. In Christ, what happens is he takes our polluted garments. He says, here, here, go change. Go take your identity of being immoral, imperfect, unfaithful. Go take that identity off. I have a new identity for you. I want to put my robe on you so that when people see you, when my father sees you, he sees me. Don't you for one second think that you bring much to the table. Even what you do bring is a gift from God that nobody may boast. And Jesus says, here's what's happened through your little bit of faith. You've not denied my name and you have kept the gospel guarded and protected. It's the power of Jesus that infuses your faith and my faith that causes impossible things to happen like salvation, like doors being unlocked, like lives being transformed, like hope coming to hopelessness, like light coming to darkness, strength coming in weakness. Those things come. It's the power of God coming on you. It's not your own power. Verse 9. Behold. Now, He's going to start talking about the synagogue of Satan again. He's already mentioned that in a previous letter. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, before we, we slip into a misunderstanding that somehow Jesus is making an ethnic attack, let's fully understand what's happening here. So obviously Jesus wants us to think of the Old Testament imagery, right, especially in this letter. And so what happens in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what would come. And so the Jews in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, are actually a foreshadowing of God's kingdom. All ethnicities. From the beginning of the Jewish nation, Genesis 12 is where God first talks to Abraham and makes a promise. And what does he say in that promise? Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants. God's chosen people, the Old Testament. And then what is he, how does he end that? Through your lineage, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the nations, ethnicities, all ethnicities on earth. So what God does in the Old Testament with the people of Israel is a foreshadowing of what would come. That's why we saw that in, uh, in, in the prophet Isaiah 22, foreshadowing Jesus as the one who unlocks and so, and so now here we have Jesus talking about the Jews. What is he saying? Well, I think it's so important to see what he describes them, how he describes them. He says, the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, they are not. Why are they not? Because they lie. Now, we've got a fairly soft view on lying wholesale as a culture, right? And I'm not calling names, I'm just saying politically speaking, both parties included, um, across the board, keeping your word doesn't seem to be a big deal in our culture. Now, it, it's a big deal in our personal lives, right? I mean, the second you lie to your spouse, that's a big deal. Why? Because lying is an incredible betrayal. And it's a big deal in Jesus' eyes. And when he describes Satan, he describes Satan in such a way that you'll know when Satan works because there'll be lies present. That's a big deal. 
not white lies or innocent lies, but Jesus takes truth seriously. Matter of fact, in, in John chapter 8, 44, Jesus is confronting a group of people and he says, you are of your father, the devil. It's not the kind of thing you want Jesus to say to you. But then he goes on to say why he's going to say such a harsh thing. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. How does he know that? Because your father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Essentially what he's saying is Satan has his own language. It's the language of lies. And wherever you see lies on earth, know that Satan is at work. So Jesus takes the truth very seriously, right? And we do too on a personal level, despite the fact that as a culture and a society, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal anymore to be transparent or tell the truth. Jesus is saying, here's why they are of the synagogue of Satan. It doesn't have anything to do with their ethnicity. The problem is that they're proclaiming to be Jews, but they're not. They lie. Now, now think about that. I mean, if anybody was going to see the Messiah when he comes, acknowledge him and worship him, right, you would think it would have been the Jews. They had thousands of years of documented prophecy of the one who would come. We've just read a couple of them. Hundreds of prophecies describing the Messiah who would come. If anybody was right, going to catch on and go, that's him, you would think it would be them. But instead, what were they doing? Rather than following Jesus, they were selling out his followers, spinning lies about them, lying to Caesar, getting them caught, thinking that if they could deflect the attention of the Roman government onto them, that they would be left alone. And Jesus is saying, you're not the synagogue of God. You're the synagogue of Satan. You are liars. Now, here's something I want us to understand. So, so important. Over and over again in the New Testament, um, Ephesians 2, Galatians 3, we'll read. The apostles over and over again want us to understand that what God promised to Abraham in chapter 12 for the Jews would one day become the promise for the nations. So if you have a hard time understanding, well, it seems like God's playing favorites in the Old Testament. You know what? He is. He's saying, I have a chosen people and they are my favorite. But you know what? Ultimately, he's not talking about the Jews. He's talking about his kingdom. He's talking about you. That what you see in the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing, a reflection of what is to come. That God would see you that way regardless of your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, your color of skin, your language, where you come from, whichever side of the tracks, that you would understand you are chosen you are special in the eyes of God. Now, if it's no longer based on ethnicity, what is it based on then? This is an important part of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Here's the answer. Here's what God wants you to know. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. No longer will God's people be identified by their ethnicity, the color of the skin, who their parents are. Here's how you'll know who God's people are. They are people of faith. They are men and women who believe. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, I love it. Verse 8 is pointing back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And the scripture, meaning the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by what? 
faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What? God preached the gospel to Abraham? When did he do that? Look at what he says. Quoting Genesis 12, 3, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. That was a foreshadowing of the gospel. One of the ways I like to think about how the Old Testament works, it's almost like an echo going backwards. We all know how an echo works, right? There's a source of sound, hello, and then after it falls what? A reflection of that voice, and it grows more faint the further it goes into the distance. So think about that in reverse then. What we get in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 1, moving forward, is this faint echo that gets louder and louder and more clear and more clear. What's the real voice? Jesus. This echo going backward every day, growing more and more clear of the coming gospel. And what Paul is saying is that in Genesis 12, way back in your Old Testament, you could already hear the faint sound of that echo. Abraham heard it. He heard God say, through your descendants, I will bless the nations. That was the gospel on its way. And so Abraham ultimately, according to Hebrews 11, was saved. Why? Because he was a noble man, a moral man, a faithful man? No. Right after this promise, he tries to sell his wife out so he doesn't get killed. He's called a child of God. He is saved because he believed. He brought faith to the table. Like a mustard seed, he brought faith to the table. And then we read verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, and then jump down to 26 in Galatians 3. This is beautiful. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, or sons and daughters of God, through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. You catch all that? So when Jesus is calling out the Jews in the city, he's not pulling a Jew-Gentile thing. He's saying, here's the issue I have with them. It's that they claim to be my people, and they're not. They're lying. They're selling out my people. And so look at what he says will happen to those who lie and sell out God's people. He says... Those who are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this is really important. All throughout the letters, we are called conquerors, and we talked about this. Why are we called conquerors? Because he conquers. We're co-conquerors with him. So in the end, when the dust settles, we're on his side. Therefore, we're conquerors. Romans 8 will say that you're more than conquerors. Right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. What is he, what, what's, see, the idea isn't that the Jews are going to come down, come and bow down to these Christian believers. What ultimately Jesus is saying is what he said in Philippians 2, that there will come a day, this is in Philippians 2, verse 10, that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We talked about this just a week or two ago, that all of God's enemies we've made like footstools before his feet. And what is Jesus reminding his Christian followers of? You're on my side. These people who are rising against you right now, standing against you in authority, trying to oppress you, throw you in prison, lock you up. Here's the thing. They can't unlock for you what I've unlocked, and they can't shut it either. And not only that, 
all of God's enemies will be made a footstool and will bow at the name of Jesus. And you guys are on my side. You are conquerors with me. Look at where he goes next. If you're taking notes, at the return of Jesus, all of God's enemies will be brought to their knees before his throne. All of God's enemies will be brought to their knees before his throne. Just some quick imagery here. You may have missed this in the sermon series. In Revelation 1, the second sermon, we looked at how John the apostle responds to this image of Jesus. So in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus is identifying himself to the apostle with all these beautiful identity markers. And what does John do? I mean, he knows Jesus well. He falls at his feet as though what? Dead. Can I just tell you, he's not scared of the robe or the sash or even the imagery he sees. He's bowing at the holiness he sees in the revealed image of Jesus. Now think about that. The holiness of God is such that just at the mere presence, every knee will bow. Now what what does that mean for us then? You mean earlier we were just singing, you are welcome here. Apart from Jesus, that's a pretty scary thing to say, isn't it? Like, I don't want the holiness of God to show up in my life without some kind of a buffer or mediator, right? Somebody to stand between me. Why? Because I'm as good as dead too. What we're saying then when we say you are welcome here is not so much that we're inviting God to come as much as we're acknowledging what is already true. He's here. And we're standing in his very presence. Why? Because Jesus has unlocked it and invited us in. No one can shut what he opens. He has opened up access, not just into the king's palace, but into the king's presence. On Tuesday morning, when I sit on the side of my bed and on my app and I open up God's word and I'm reading it, I am sitting in the presence of a holy God right then. And when I show up on Sunday and you show up and the saints come marching in, we show up and we acknowledge and we experience and we enjoy the presence of God together. Jason Martin said it earlier, where two or three gather in his name, he is in their midst. God dwells and he inhabits the praise of his people, his saints. Jesus opened that up for us. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, we'll get into the hour of trouble in just a minute, but I don't know if you caught on to what was just said there. Because you have kept, Jesus says, I will keep. There's a double keeping here, right? All throughout the the gospel being presented in the New Testament, all throughout these letters written, we are encouraged to do what? To keep. We talked about it earlier, to hold tight like a mother holds tight to an infant child and we guard it and we protect it. One of the ways I I illustrate what we just read here is is the relationship between me and maybe my youngest son. So he runs up to me and says, Daddy, pick me up. And he throws his arms on me and I reach down and I take hold of him, right? I grab a hold and I keep him and I pick him up. He throws his arms around my neck and holds tight. But what happens if I let go? Boom, he's dropped. So there's this idea of holding tight to one who has already held tight to you. Um, I'll share a story with you that that reminds me of this idea. Uh, When I was 16 years old, 
Um, I've always been somewhat um, uh, intrigued by and drawn to daredevils. And, and not so much because I am one or I'm super brave. I just, I admire people who don't mind risking, risking it all. Um, and so like I tend to hang out with daredevils. So 16 years old, I was working for a guy who was somewhat of a daredevil and one of his good friends from high school who was a daredevil. And they got this great idea that they wanted to parasail. You know, parasailing is where you get this parachute that has wind that can blow through it and you put it behind a boat out over the water. Some of you have done this probably like down in, on vacation in Mexico or somewhere, right? So here we are. This is before YouTube. This is before Google, right? No, no manuals on how to parasail. You got a guy with a boat who says to his best friend, tell you what, I'll put gas in the boat if you'll buy a parachute and a rope and we'll, we'll, we'll learn how to parasail together. Like there are just some things you don't need to learn on the job. You need to have some instruction beforehand. And so I guess to, to kind of ease their mind, they begin to talk about who's going to do it first. That's where I come in. And so they're like, well, Jason's 16 and he's dumb. Let's ask him if he wants to come with us. And so, so I said yes. And so here we are out on um, Weatherford Lake. This is a true story with two guys, Rick and Rick. And, uh, and, and so they've got this great idea. Rick pulls his boat up to the beach there. And the other Rick and I, we drive the car out onto the beach and we unroll, unfold this parachute, parasail thing. We tie the rope on, tie it to the boat, put the harness on me. And yeah, on me, and I'm looking at this thing like, is this going to hold? Like, how do we know the chute's going to open? Like, how, like, all these questions, right? But then it's go time. Adrenaline's pumping, right? I've got a hold of my, my harness, and I'm all strapped in. And Rick on the, on the beach has got the parachute fluffing it in the wind. <laughs> He's like, go, go, go. And so we take off. And so we're headed off of the beach. We're headed kind of northeast, Okay. And it works. All of a sudden, the parachute catches, and I feel the rope tighten up, and, and here I go. And now the, the first question I have is how high before this thing kind of tops out? And so we've got a 200-foot rope here. It start going up, and about 75 feet or so. It's higher than I want to drop, right? But not so high that I'm completely freaked out. So I'm white-knuckling this thing, and I finally catch my breath and start breathing again. And we, we turn, and we cruise down to, so we make it, if you're from Weatherford, we make it to the wall, Right? We turn there and we head back to the western end of the lake, all the way down, and we're just cruising. These guys, I can see them talking down there and they're, they're playing with the throttle, going faster and slower. And I'm like, all right, now when is this thing going to end? Like we didn't talk this thing through. What's the signal that I'm done? Because I can't just let go, right? Like I'm up here until they decide to slow down and let me fall. And then, and then we didn't even talk about we're going to land on the beach where we took off. We're going to land in the water. And I'm thinking this parachute's going to land on my head. I just didn't think this thing through. And so... When we make it to the west end of the lake and we turn back to the south and into the east, the, the, the wind was coming out of the southeast and it had picked up. And we hit a gust of wind, y'all, that caught that parachute in such a way that, that it pulled tension back and I started going straight up above the boat. So now I'm 200 feet above the boat. It begins to lift the boat out of the water. <laughs> I can hear the prop spinning. Ding! And I can see Rick and Rick looking at each other like... Now what do we do, right? And so here's what happens. Like I close my eyes, I grab a hold of my harness, I'm holding on for dear life, and then it happens. The sound of a rope or a cable that's really tight when it pops. Yeah, like there's no mistaking that sound. I don't need my eyes open to know what just happened. Now, I don't know which rope broke, 
Am I falling? Now, here's the thing. I didn't go down before we went down because there was so much tension. I went up first. Dude, I'm freaking out. Like, I'm just, I'm a kite in the wind with no string. I'm seeing, like, the tops of buildings and, and trees, and I have no idea where this thing's going to land. And so here's what happens. I close my eyes. I clench really, 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 really tight, and then it begins to come down. And here's the reality of what was happening in that moment. It didn't matter if I held on or not, did it? Right, because why? The harness had a hold of me. Now, I had a death grip on the harness. We landed in the water. I was a little freaked out. The parachute was going to land on me and drown me. It didn't. It landed fine. I got back in the boat and said, what? It's your turn now. <laughs> it's your turn now. So I, evidently I lived through that experience. But that moment is, is what I picture when I read that we keep Jesus. We hold tight to him with everything that we are. Right? We're taking hold of him who has already taken hold of us. Secured us in. The harness is Right, secure and right, and you hold on for dear life. This is what's going on in the lives of these Christians. They're holding tight, they're keeping their grip on Him, but their security isn't in their grip. Why? Because they've only got a little bit of power. The security is in the fact that Jesus has His grip on them. And He goes on to say, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to those who dwell on the earth. So some commentators will debate, maybe a specific season of persecution that the church was about to go through, which is somewhat valid, or potentially the final tribulation, which the church would potentially walk through. Here's the thing, I, I don't know for sure. It sounds a whole lot like end times tribulation to me, but the point that I want to make is that because of the wording, it's not that Jesus is going to remove them from the trial, it's that he's going to keep them in the midst of the trial. Now that's different and that's the message I need to hear. Why? Because when I walk through trials and darkness, I need to be reminded what? Jesus has me. He has his grip on me. This moment may feel dark and desperate and lonely and hard and maybe even painful, but Jesus has me. Jesus has me. This is what he says in Matthew 7. The man who, what? hears my words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house on what? The solid rock. When the storm comes, because understand the storm is coming, that house won't fall. Jesus is like an anchor in the midst of a storm. The storm is going to come against the ship and toss it back and forth. But when we're anchored in Christ, we will survive the storm. And so he says to these Christians, whether he's talking about the immediate persecution they're walking into, or he's talking about a tribulation that we potentially all could walk through, he's saying, here's what you need to know. I will keep you. I will guard you. I will protect you in the midst of it. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You know, when Jesus is praying in John 17, he says this. He says, I do not ask, talking to God, his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It's very similar to what he's saying to this church. Here's the thing. You're going to walk through some hard stuff, but know that I am keeping you in the midst of it. We are called <clears throat> to hold tight to Jesus as he holds tight to us. Hold tight to Jesus as he holds tight to you. Verse 12. The one who conquers, 
Now get this imagery. This is, this is beautiful. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's so, multiple places you could go in the New Testament to hear this imagery. Um, Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite Ephesians 2, right after the Apostle Paul says, remember that in the Old Testament, how the Jews represented God's people and the Gentiles, those who were opposed to God. What Paul says in Ephesians 2 is Jesus came and died on the cross to break down that hostility and bring the two together as one. Okay? And then right after that, in verse 19, this is Ephesians 2, he says, so then, this is what it means for us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Your citizenship is his kingdom. It's what Jesus is saying here. I'm gonna write God's name on you. I'm gonna write the name of God's city on you. I'm gonna write on you my new name. And I love the imagery in Ephesians 2. We are described as the household of God being built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself being our cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together grows into a holy temple in the, in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We'll end with this imagery. It's like a piece of stone over here that has been carved and chipped and shaped to fit perfectly in the wall. That's each of our lives. You come to Jesus as maybe one that doesn't fit in, a stranger, rough around the edges, a lot that needs to be chipped off. And Jesus said, I'll take what you've got and I'll start working on you right now. And he begins to, to shape our lives day by day, more and more. We look more and more like him. And he's shaping us to fit into a perfect place in his kingdom. Now that's a metaphor describing what? He's describing you and I as we walk into this room on Sunday mornings, we come together as a bunch of pieces of stone being shaped together to fit into and to become the temple of God, the temple housing God's very presence. And I love this imagery. This is permanent. You're being fashioned as a pillar, something that doesn't move. You're not a coffee table. You're not a footstool. You're being shaped and fashioned as a pillar in God's temple. And so permanent that God is going to write his name on your heart and the name of his city on your heart. And then I don't fully get this. Jesus says, even my own new name. Maybe Jesus has a name that we have yet to hear yet because our ears aren't quite good enough to hear it. But that will be written on our hearts. You're no longer identified by the mistakes you made yesterday or the mistakes you'll make later today. You're identified by Christ himself. If you're taking notes, let's end here. Jesus establishes his people like pillars in his kingdom with a permanent identity as citizens in his kingdom. It's who you are now. It's who you are. Now, I know that a lot of what we talked about today, um, I'm gonna spend some time in prayer and invite Jason Martin and the worship team just to come back up and get us ready to respond. But so much of what we heard about today is encouragement for Christians. I hope you've been encouraged today. But there's an invitation on the table that Jesus talked about that I want you to know about. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus has unlocked a door before you and he's inviting you to come in. 
And whatever your reasons are, your excuses, all the things that you feel like disqualify you, Jesus says, perfect, bring those things. All I'm looking for is faith the size of a mustard seed, so small that I can't even hardly see it. Bring that, bring your mess, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to robe you in my righteousness and call you mine. That invitation is on the table for you today. And I'm going to pray that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you and faith would come to Christ, trusting him for your identity, trusting in him for purpose, trusting in him for love, and all the things that cannot be taken away from you. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we're so thankful for reminding us that you are the God who makes and keep prom keeps promises, God. We are horrible promise keepers. We live in a world of broken promises, and you remind us today that you are the true one. You're the faithful one, the one that is real, the one who makes and keeps promises. And so today, we're so encouraged by that. And even more than that, God, we're so thankful that you don't identify us by our mistakes or by the culture around us, but you, God, you meet us in our weakness. You meet us with the littlest, smallest grain of faith, and you bring your power, and you change us. You save us. You secure us. You call us your own. And today I just pray for any person here who does not know you that way, the way that the Christians in the church in Philadelphia knew you, that don't know you, the way that the Christians here today at Solid Rock know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord Jesus, come, have your way with us, send your spirit to move among us now. I pray in Jesus' powerful name. As we prepare to respond in worship, I just want you to know that our prayer partners will be available at the back of the service or something going on you'd like for us to pray about with you. If you want to find out more information about becoming a Christian, they're here for you in that as well. Let's prepare our hearts to stand and sing and respond to God.